broadcasting from Melbourne, Victoria. You're listening to the Investor Exchange. Tune in each week and listen to the guys from United Global Capital discuss the topics that matter the most to your finances. Each episode will help you separate the noise from what really matters, giving you timely and actionable information you can use. We'll cover areas related to financial markets, property, politics, personal finance, and the economy. Now, here's your host, Stephanie Sumner. A very good morning, guys, on this very, very gloomy Melbourne day. I don't know about you guys from what you can see out your window, but it is bucketing down. Uh, That's Yes, yes. Welcome to Victoria. Um, I've had to... I've had to jostle around some uh, some camping plans. Oh no! We're yeah. gonna wash out this weekend, I think, will we? Oh, just until tomorrow morning. The forecast yeah. is for, for better weather, so um, uh, we were going to cancel our uh, our Friday night plans. Um, no, we we checked into a, a hotel that's next to a pub instead. Oh, even better. You've got <laughs> you've got it made. So there you go. So that'll <laughs> be Friday night, and then uh, and then we'll pitch our tents on Saturday. Where were you going? Or where are you? Uh, going? Down to, to Walkerville. So uh, so tonight you can catch me at the Fish Creek Pub. Oh, been there many times, Louie. Great pub. <laughs> Very good. It'll be my first time, but it comes highly recommended. Uh, it is a good one. Well, was the local I'm a one bit upset about this weather, though, because, um, you know, I think nine months or ten months of COVID, and then we, we haven't had much of a summer yet. So a bit disappointing. No. I don't think we will. Uh, I think the um, the meteorologists tell us that we're in a La Nina pattern, mm. uh, which generally for Melbourne means uh, not really any kind of summer to, to brag about. Yeah, sounds, sounds we, like every year. I think we had our five days of summer last week, <laughs> accumulating yeah. in that heat wave, and I think that was it for the year. Yeah. That's tragic, absolutely tragic. Brett, what are your plans this weekend? Are you doing something fun? Uh no actual plans, actually. Uh, a couple of family visits that I, I've got scheduled. Other than that, it'll be, yeah, not, nothing out of the ordinary. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, the long weekend, I, I took an extra couple of days down the beach, so that was kind of my, my break for the start of the year. Um, Didn't yeah, run into Louis funny. again, did you? No, no, different different part of the world, or slightly different part of the world. Oh, good one. Yeah, I think you just got to suck up all these public holidays until we sort of get to that mid part of the year, and then uh, then it's the hard slog again. So. Yeah, uh, we know what to expect. That's right. That's right. All right, guys, well, we might just get into our first topic for today. And I'm going to actually start with Joel this morning because there's been some crazy trading over the last 24 hours. What is going on? Uh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, the stock market is always full of interesting events and interesting happenings. But uh, certainly in the last several days, uh, trading uh, in a couple of heavily shorted stocks. So for those listeners who aren't uh, completely familiar with what a short sale is. It's essentially where a large institutional hedge fund, um, typically done by professional investors, but retail investors can do it as well. Uh, it is uh, typically where uh, large um, institutional investors will have a negative view on a particular company. They will borrow stock from somebody who already owns those shares, sell the shares at a high price of what they think would be a high price, with the aim to buy them back at a lower price and then give the shares back to the person or the company or institution that they borrowed those shares from. And by selling at a high price and buying them back at a low price, they're able to make a profit on the share price declining. 
So that's what a short sale is, and um, it actually happens quite frequently. Um, and uh, what has happened uh, just in the last several days is that uh, Reddit, the online social media platform, um, and some of its participants, uh, a very large cohort of participants of retail investors uh, in a forum or a sub-forum on that platform called Wall Street Bets, uh, orchestrated a coordinated attack on several um, stocks that were heavily shorted uh, by, in particular, one particular fund manager called Melvin Capital. So something might have uh, have have uh, caught the attention of these retail investors, where they perhaps thought that Melvin Capital and its um, and its partners uh, were up to something no good, and uh, and they have coordinated a buying attack on the shares in which uh, this hedge fund and a number of other hedge funds were heavily short and have orchestrated a huge, um, a huge what we call a short squeeze. Now, a short squeeze comes about when, um, when short sellers who are heavily short the stock and have an obligation to give that stock back at some point in time to the people who they've borrowed it from, uh, a short squeeze happens where those short sellers are forced to buy back that stock in rapid fashion because the trade is going against them which then exacerbates the, the loss that they're experiencing because they then swap from becoming net sellers to becoming net buyers of the stock. And that has the effect of really pushing share prices up to stratospheric levels in a very short space of time. And for those people, the, the retail investors who have uh, orchestrated the short squeeze, uh, they're buying at low prices and continue to push the share price up. And then they get this free kick from the short seller then having to buy the shares back and it can lead to uh, some huge trading uh, if uh, if done. But what has uh, what's been interesting is this has actually happened in some rather large cap companies. So the, what has happened is that this has almost been a David and Goliath type of event, where retail investors who usually are considered the dumb money, uh, and uh, institutional investors which are generally consider themselves as the smart money, um, it, it's almost been flipped here and uh, David has uh, wreaked its revenge on Goliath and uh, to the point that Melvin Capital got hurt so badly in uh, in their short squeeze, the two stocks in particular that were targeted were GameStop and BlackBerry. So GameStop is a, retail, uh, a retailer of uh, video games. Uh, so you can understand why a short seller might, might uh, uh, decide that GameStop would be a good uh, longer-term short because sounds the like the blockbuster video of video games. Correct. Yeah, structurally, uh, structurally impaired or structurally challenged business model, uh, given that we're moving to online and uh, subscription-based revenue models with even with gaming. And BlackBerry, BlackBerry uh, obviously was the leader in smartphones prior to the iPhone coming out. Uh, since then, um, it's really struggled to find uh, find anything that it can do effectively and commercialize anything that uh, is outside of just the patents that it currently owns. Uh, so it, it essentially doesn't create anything these days except licenses the patents that it, that it currently owns uh, that, that go into various technology um, and, and consumer electronics. But at both of those two businesses, um, Melvin Capital was very, sh uh, was, uh, well, certainly in GameStop, but we believe that uh, it was also short in BlackBerry. Now, GameStop went from a, a share price of about $20 a couple of weeks ago up to $483. Uh, 
it has the ticker symbol GME. Now that's important because it had ramifications for another stock on the Australian stock market that shared its ticker symbol on our exchange. Blackberry went from $6.50 up to $36 um, over the last couple of weeks on the back of this uh, on the back of this uh, coordinated short selling attempt. Sorry, uh, short squeeze attempt. Uh, now Melbourne Capital lost $2.7 billion and was forced to be bailed out by uh, a couple of its partners that were also short in GameStop and BlackBerry. Now, you ask the question, why would it, why would other funds want to bail out uh, uh, Melbourne Capital to the tune of $2.7 billion? Well, the reality is that if they didn't, um, they, would, uh, they, would, they would find themselves in deep trouble of a bailout, um, and uh, they've had to take money out of other stocks that they've owned to continue to push, put the pressure to, to maintain this, um, to maintain enough selling pressure to stop uh, Melbourne Capital from going bust. Because if Melbourne Capital then went bust, that whole position would have to be closed out, which would then exacerbate the trade even further. So in order to keep all of their positions in good water, they needed to make sure that Melbourne Capital didn't go bust. Uh, and so uh, it's been a crazy, crazy couple of days. Now, um, we, I spoke about uh, GameStop sharing the ticker symbol of GME with another uh, company on our stock market. That's, that uh, stock is GME Resources. Now, GME Resources has absolutely nothing to do with GameStop, except for the fact that they just share the same ticker symbols on two different and completely separate exchanges. But GME Resources was up 50% in, in, uh, in trade the other day. Um, as a result of uh, sympathy buying or or a case of mistaken identity. Oh, yes. so, so it wasn't the sadness wasn't just uh, you know directed at um, at uh, the two US stocks or there was actually more US stocks that were involved in this that were targeted, but um, but it also flowed into GME resources. Generally in the United States, not illegal for short sellers to share information with one another. Um, and uh, and com in combine in, in combination uh, take positions to bet against the stock, um, uh, uh, and uh, and actually sh short sell that stock to to put pressure on the on the shares. Kind of like an insider trading. Well, it, kind it, of it can be considered market manipulation if it's done um, in a way that could be seen to uh, unfairly move the share price. So yeah. in the United States, they have an uptick rule, which means that uh, Sellers of shares who are going short have to wait for their their sell order to be hit rather than their sell orders hitting the um, hitting the bid and pushing the price down. Mm. You need to have a buyer come in and hit their sale order rather than the seller coming in and hitting the the, the, the buy order and pushing the and, and potentially pushing the share price down. But what about now? I mean, something like this has been so massive. Do you think that they'll start to tighten up? There, well, th this is the this is the other. Uh, uh, factor that comes into play is that uh, market manipulation um, can also be seen as a pump and dump scheme, and, and the, the risk is that uh, in on these platforms, if there is a coordinated um, uh, sort of uh, co coordinated, you know, attack on on this particular uh, or on a couple of particular stocks, and then misinformation is spread across these platforms or um, something that could potentially hype up. The, the 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 other the, 
members that aren't part of this, but you know, it attracts others from outside of a particular coordinator group, that could then be seen as a pump and dump type arrangement. Mm. So yes, it's a very risky, very, very risky um, strategy by these retail investors. And I'm, and I'm certain that there will be, um, uh, certainly the regulator will be looking at the, the action that has taken place here. My other question to you is too, I mean, for GME resources in Australia where that the stock um, went up by 50%, that's great for them. But what if that had a detrimental effect where it went the other way and affected the Australian stock market and they lost 50%? I mean, that would be wild. Right? Well, that, well, that can certainly happen as well. Um, unfortunately, I mean, it's, it's a bit hard to regulate cases of mistaken identity, but, um, uh, but in this particular case, uh, you know, there's certainly a case for the regulator to look at uh, the trading that took place in the US. In the US instance, that's the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC. Uh, but uh, certainly ASIC have, have, um, have also, we'll have, we'll have a look at what took, took place in GME resources and mm. make sure that uh, nothing uh, untoward uh, happened there. But it reminds me very much of, um, a, uh, I guess, a, an, a, an argument uh, that happened between uh, famous um, hedge fund managers in around about 2011, 2012, where Bill Ackman had a short position on Herbalife. And he came out and, uh, and and announced why Herbalife was a Ponzi scheme. And Carl Icahn, um, who uh, had a major fallout with Bill Ackman only a, a couple of years previously, decided to take the other side of the bet. And uh, not only did Carl Icahn take the other side of the trade, but several of his friends came in and took the other side of the trade as well <laughs> oh, and wow. actually um, squeezed Bill Ackman. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, in a short squeeze. So, you know, you don't have to have just, you know, a, a whole group of retail investors. Uh, you can also have a, uh, you know, just a couple of uh, very wealthy individuals that just don't like each other. <laughs> these scenarios. Is that famous quote? So this was Carl Icahn who said uh, about Bill Ackman that if you want a friend on Wall Street, get a dog. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Careful who you pick a fight with. <laughs> exactly. So, um, so look, crazy, crazy trading, and um, you know th these types of uh, schemes, these types of um, crazy type of volatile trading, does make me a little bit wary. It, uh, it perhaps suggests that retail investors are getting a little bit cocky. They've made a lot of gains off the lows from from uh, March of last year, and it does suggest to me that they're becoming more bold uh, in their actions and and. You know, historically, when retail investors get confident and cocky, that has never tended to be a great timing event for the stock market because retail investors tend to not have the information that professionals do and, and they tend to be the last in for stocks. And so, you know, it could potentially be a bit of a warning sign. And for the last uh, last week or so, we've been a little bit, or the last couple of weeks, we've certainly gone a bit cautious on this market. We've Sold uh, sold some of our holdings in in uh, the last week and a half, and we have seen um, a little bit of volatility in the stock market. Came in uh, yesterday in the, in the last 24 hours of trading, where this type of trading perhaps spooked some of the professionals, and uh, there was a bit of a sell off. And then, you know, I've just had a look at the price action this morning, and and uh, you know we've had a bit of a rally, but then the the close into the trading session this morning looked quite quite weak. Uh, it wasn't a strong close. So, you know, I, I think to be majorly worried about because the headline yesterday, I as I was saying before, was um, reported on the podcast was billions wiped off the ASX. Should, be, should we be panicking? 
<laughs> well, um, look, we were down around about two and a half, I think it was about 2%, two and a half percent in the US previous trading session. I actually haven't had a look at what the Aussie was down, but uh, certainly some of our stocks took a bit of a, a hammering yesterday. Um, no, I don't believe that this is, if we get, get a pullback here and we are primed for a pullback, uh, and if this is the start of the pullback that we're starting to see, um, you know, I, I don't believe that this is going to lead into, you know, the, the next big, you know, bust, but certainly it could be in the range of a 5-10%, maybe even a bit more than a 10% correction. We're, we're certainly frothy and there's certainly elements of froth in the market at this point in time. Um, so, you know, a, a correction in that order would not be out of the question. Okay. Any advice that you can give our, our listeners on what to do for the next few weeks? Look, I, I think it's a, a good time to just reassess which are your strongest stocks, um, you know, which are the stocks that uh, yeah, you're holding a profit in um, that uh, that are acting well in the face of this weakness and uh, perhaps continue to, to hold those ones. But the ones that are acting the weakest, the ones that haven't created much of a, a profit for you and perhaps are, are not acting uh, well and, and are not, uh, you know, creating those higher highs and higher lows, they're perhaps the ones that you might want to think about trimming back. Um, you want to you want to cull your weeds and water your roses. Uh, many others actually uh, chop their roses and uh, and hold on to their weeds because they have that mentality of, of wanting to um, not take a loss. But uh, often the, the best thing to do is to limit your losses and uh, and hold on to the ones that are performing the best. All right. Well, great advice. Guys, we're going to take a very short break and we'll come back after this message. Want to learn the strategies that have achieved returns more than double the return of the average superannuation fund? Each day, clients of United Global Capital are using strategies and tactics that were once thought the domain of the professional investor or the super rich. Book your seat at UGC's Financial Fast Track Seminars, where you'll learn the science behind selecting high-performance stocks and real estate how you can participate in advanced strategies like property development, short selling, and international investments, as well as how to protect your wealth against major adverse market events. To secure your seat, simply go to ugc.net.au slash events and select the seminar that suits your needs. Seats are limited, so book your spot now. Hey, welcome back, guys. Um, we're now going to throw it to Louis. And Louis, you actually uh, wanted to just speak about GameStop and, and just continue on that conversation. Yeah, follow up for Joel, because I reckon this uh, this GameStop story is only halfway through, because what you've got now is is this company, GameStop, that's had like a 20 times increase in its share price that was probably already overvalued. What's going to happen now? Because the fundamentals of that company surely don't stack up to uh, to maintaining the current share price. And um, uh, I love the Reddit platform. I haven't engaged with it for a for a while now because it tends to be a real drainer of time. Um, but I just hopped on their front page and um, uh, their, their posts. Uh, the front page is dominated by. Uh, GameStop posts uh, in between the the cat videos and the and the ads for zombie games, uh, <laughs> but but you can find them. Uh, and if these Reddit users are, are are buying up the stocks, and and if we continue to think of them as the 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 retail investors or or the dumb money, um, they're buying into this stock and continuing to buy it when it's uh, at at a price of hundreds of dollars. I reckon they're going to be left holding the can uh, at the end of it with a severely overpriced stock. 
Uh, great, great comment, Louis, and um, and I, uh, I think you're absolutely right here. It's a high risk strategy, right, for these guys because if you have a look at uh, GameStop right now, GameStop has gone from that $483. It's now trading at $193. So it's it's more than halved in just one day of trading. So um, it's, it's a very, very risky proposition to be engaging in this strategy uh, because buying the stock is one thing, but then you've got to sell the stock. And if everyone's on the buy side during your short squeeze and no one's you know, and, and then all of a sudden that short squeeze comes to an end and then there's no buyers left, then all of a sudden you're still holding those shares and you haven't got uh, anyone to sell them to. And then all of a sudden you're going to have to accept um, a much, you know, much, much lower price to get out of your position. Mm. Um, one of the things that uh, we've, we've been trying to perfect, and it is certainly art, as much as um, science involved in this is uh, getting comfortable with selling into strength. Um, and uh, many people don't understand the, the power of, of uh, or, they, or they don't quite understand why you would sell a stock that is going up. And the reality is if you've owned a stock for a very, very long period of time, or you've owned a stock that has gone up a hell of a lot, um, eventually you're gonna run out of buyers to keep pushing that share price up. And so what you need to be thinking about is what's your exit plan. Now, if you're waiting for the share price to peak and then you're selling as the share price starts to reverse, it's reversing because you're running out of buyers. Um, and uh, all of a sudden, sellers now are more in number than what the buyers are. So it always pays to, to, to be considering selling into strength if you are one of these speculative uh, purchases and, uh, and, and involved in any of these types of schemes. Um, even if you're a trader of size, um, you, you need to be thinking about how you're going to get out of your position. And that's why, um, you know, we, we've been working on our strategy, uh, particularly with our hedge fund that we're launching in six to eight weeks time of selling into strength. But selling into strength doesn't mean cutting off the trade. It means understanding what your profit objective is in that trade. And then once you've achieved that profit objective, starting to lighten up your uh, position as the share price continues to rise. So yeah. there's still yeah. enough buyers there to sell your stock to. Yeah, exactly. This guy on Reddit is talking about uh, his his position in GameStop now being worth forty million US dollars uh, wow. because of the uh, the increase in share price. But you, you're never going to get forty million dollars when you hit the, hit the sell button. I, I, you could barely sell a high volume stock like Commonwealth Bank. You you couldn't sell forty million dollars of that in a single day without pushing the price of CBA around. Absolutely. Let alone. $40 million of some um, small shitty retailer who's, um, uh, who's, whose share price is uh, 20 times or 50 times or 100 times overvalued. Yeah. 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 Sure going to be interesting to watch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes, so uh, there's, there's going to be some crashing and burning going on, I reckon. Absolutely. Yeah. So. Yep. Now, Louis, we're going to throw into your, ne your next topic, really, and that's um, setting habits and making space to achieve them in 2020. Now, tell us more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So the the start of the year is is upon us, and uh, and and last year I went through um, my process of doing a, a year in review, uh, and, uh, and and another thing I do at the start of every year is a goal setting exercise. 
Uh, I've talked about goal setting on this podcast previously, so I won't go into detail about that today. Um, but the the point of it is to give yourself a clear direction of things that you want to achieve um, in the long term, uh, and then come out of that exercise uh, with some one year goals and also some shorter term goals, some ninety day goals, uh, good to work towards as well. Um, so uh, without going too much into that, once you've got your goals to aim towards, well, then it's a matter of what do you do to actually change what you're doing currently so that you can pivot your life towards working uh, on those goals and, and actually taking the step towards achieving them. Uh, sometimes, well, uh, I shouldn't say sometimes, I should say often, people think of uh, working towards a goal as kind of mapping a path and a series of steps that get taken. So you set your milestones uh, and, and you achieve one thing and then you look to achieve the second thing and the third thing and the fourth thing in this kind of sequential order. But the reality is a lot of things that people want to achieve don't come from a sequential order of things so much as a constant and regular effort. Uh, if you think of people who do things like winning a gold medal, it doesn't come from uh, achieving skill one and then achieving skill two and then getting award three and, and taking those steps so much. What it actually comes from is practicing four hours a day. Yeah. If you're going to uh, be the author of a book, um, yes, there is milestones, but the only way you're going to hit those milestones of first draft, meeting a publisher or an editor and whatever those steps are, you're not going to hit any of those milestones if you don't have a habit of writing for an hour a day or a number of hours a week. Uh, so if you don't get that habitual action uh, that's going on, you're not actually going to progress towards the goal. So the, the point of, uh, of what I'm saying today is... Uh, adopting a new habit and making space to allow that habit to have the time to kick into gear and that activity to happen. Uh, and actually, got uh, Joel, I see you doing this right now. You're opening up your calendar. You've got a really big thing that you want to do this year, and you're opening up your calendar and making that space in your diary every day so that you've got the hours in the morning to, to work on that thing that you're uh, looking to achieve. So, um, there, you, you got to have that time in your calendar where you're going to do that activity. Uh, for some people, it's going to be doing a run in the morning uh, if it's a, an exercise goal. Uh, but you got to have that rock in your calendar. And then when it comes time to doing it, you can't just rely on motivation to do it because motivation is short term. There's this interesting thing about a habit in our brains uh, once it's ingrained. When we are consciously doing something or learning something, we're using a certain part of our brain that takes a lot of energy to do it. But there's actually a separate part of our brain which is responsible for driving habits. Uh, and the evidence of this is, have you ever been driving your car and then you sort of wake up yes. three kilometres down the road and you're like, I just How don't I remember what the hell happened for the last <laughs> three kilometres. 
I was yeah. completely somewhere else because your conscious brain doesn't actually need to be engaged. You don't need to use any of the brain power of your conscious brain to drive the car because it's such mm. an ingrained habit. It's a separate part of the brain and uh, evolution-wise, um, what that habit part of the brain allows us to do is go into a low energy mode right. to do those repetitive tasks that we that we know. Mm. But here's the kicker to that and here's the challenge that needs to be overcome. Your brain naturally gravitates towards its old habits because it takes less brain power to follow your old habits than it takes to do something different. Right. So the best way to adopt a new habit is to break it into an old habit. If you have an old pre-existing habit, then what you want to do is you want to take your cues for that habit and modify it into the new habit. Right. So, for example, if you're going to go on a run, well, then you need to have the cues. Let's say it's a morning run. You've got to have the cues in your morning routine that now drive you towards going for a run as part of your new habit. So if your current habit is uh, you wake up, maybe you scroll on your phone, then you get out of bed, uh, then you think about breakfast or coffee uh, and you get dressed amongst all of that. What you're going to do is you're going to insert your, uh, your running trigger in amongst all of that. Uh, and that might be in your clothes drawer, you actually put your exercise gear on top of everything else so that your old habit takes you to the point of your morning where you get dressed out of habit and then your running clothes are right there. Oh, running clothes, that's my cue. I'm going to put them on and I'm going to head straight out the door. So you've now got this new cue and this new habit, which happens as, as part of following the process of your old habit. Um, that's another reason why uh, things like uh, nicotine chewing gum works uh, particularly well, better than nicotine patches for people who are trying to quit smoking. Because when your old habit is smoking, you get into this situation where you've got a cue in your brain that says, time for a cigarette. Yeah. Yeah. And that might be your morning break or a morning coffee, or it might be a stressful situation. You've, you've got these external factors that can be a trigger so that when you're replacing smoking with chewing, you've still got the same trigger, but it just leads to a, the new habit instead mm -hmm. of leading to the old habit. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. uh, and as far as our brains are concerned, yes, there's the nicotine addiction element to it, but as far as the pure habit uh, side of the equation goes, you could you don't need nicotine gum for the habit replacement. You might need nicotine gum for the nicotine addiction replacement, uh, but as far as the habit replacement, you could move to chewing uh, regular old spearmint gum. You could uh, you could actually adapt it to chewing on a on an apple or opening a bag of potato chips, or yeah. you could adapt it to whatever you want as far as the habit part of your brain is concerned. So uh, so that's what you need to do, uh, or, or those two things in combination of opening up the space to have that habitual activity going on. Mm. And then if you can ingrain it into an existing habit, well, then you've got two really powerful forces to get that new activity happening, 
which will then drive you towards your new objective and your new goal for the year. I, I tend to agree with that, Louie. I'm going to sound like I'm an alcoholic and I'm certainly not, but um, in COVID, certainly drinking quite a lot um, every night um, yeah. with the stress of just being on the computer the whole time. My yep. habit became to have a fizzy mineral water uh, when I wanted to lean towards having a drink and um, that, that actually worked. So it's just the habit of doing it. It's like, okay, Absolutely. it's work or, you know, yep. continue on and... Um, yeah. Busy water is my new thing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And and uh, drinking is a great example of a of a habit and these external cues we get because mm -hmm. when we used to be in the old office environment, by the time we got home, we've usually let go of a lot of the stresses. Yeah. But if you're still holding on to those stresses by the time you walk in your front door, then that's maybe your cue to yeah, I do want to have a drink tonight. Yeah, that's right. But now that we're working from home, we don't have that commute. We don't have that distance from the workplace to the home. Therefore, we're still when we're in our living room, we've still got that stress response, and that mm. still drives us to that cue of yeah, I do want to have a drink tonight because yeah. I'm still stressed about work, and it happens to be now five nights a week instead of maybe one or two nights a week. Mm, and that's why this drive to alcohol is is happening so quickly and you've done exactly what I'm suggesting, which is just replace re replace the, the part of the habit that you don't want to enjoy uh, with something that is better for you. Yeah. But you've still got the same series of habits. You've still got the same chain of events. You've got the trigger, which is your stress level, combined with your home environment, which takes you down this path and you've just replaced part of that habit with something new. Mm. Yep. Yeah, it makes a hell of a lot of sense to me. Um, just coming back to that uh, uh, that concept of being conscious about what you're doing to create another habit. Um, I'm, I'm actually reading a, a book on a similar topic at the moment. And um, ultimately what you want to try and do is, is get to that point where you become unconscious about the the thing that you're doing rather than consciously doing it and, and that though this is a this is a great goal and a great tool to to be able, sorry this is a great tool uh, and technique to be able to get you to that point of becoming unconsciously um you know competent to, for one of a better matter uh, one of a better word um but uh but you it, it's it's the it's the process you've got to embrace not the outcome uh, it's you've got to embrace the process of change um, that he talks about. And uh, this is a great tool to fit into trying to embrace the process and enjoying the process and, um, um, and rather than trying to focus on the outcome and uh, being disheartened when you haven't got there. Mm. But I think, yeah. um, as Louis also said, it's motivation gets you so far. Because I know when I've started <laughs> going back to the gym, you're really motivated for the first couple of weeks and then it sort of falls off. And I think that was really important what you said about it's it's that it is the habit, isn't it? Because it's it's not the motivation in the end. I mean, and, and you know, certainly uh, I was reading the same book that, that Joel was talking about and, um, you know, people that are, that are athletes, you know, they just have to get on with it and it's not the motivation that gets them up in the morning. It's that, again, it's that routine and being there and, you know, embracing that ritual as part of, part of their life. So... Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. And and Steph, you've reminded me of uh, a, a potential third factor to add to that, which would really strengthen the adoption of a new habit, and that is reward. Yeah. Once you've been to the gym, what's your reward? Mm. For some people, the endorphin rush of the gym is, is reward enough. 
but but for some people it's not. And for me, back when I was um, uh, going to the gym and and pumping some weights, God, I loved a protein shake. Absolutely loved it. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I would come home and have a protein shake, and I'd have a peanut butter and jam sandwich. Yep. And that, that was pretty my, good. Oh, awesome! That was my reward. And uh, it wasn't until I spoke to a um, a personal trainer slash nutrition person, they said um, peanut butter really has no value to it, and and neither does the jam. Just you know, why do you do that? It's it's probably actually making it worse. I'm like, good Give advice, sugar and but, fat rush. but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna take your advice. That's that's it's just what I do. So have you continued <laughs> on with that? Uh, no, I've dropped reward? the. Uh, I dropped the gym habits um, a little while ago. I haven't been able to uh, to get back into it yet. Uh, again, I, ne- I would need to open up the space uh, in my calendar to yeah. to allow the regular activity, uh, and then I'd need to um, uh, push the, the the triggers to make it happen again. Well, I think we'll all have to report back and see how we're going with our, our new uh, habits. <laughs> That's right. Another yeah. podcast. I think I'll embrace the uh, the process of buying more fizzy water. <laughs> little squeeze of lime in there bread it's excellent yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a great uh, uh alternative to like a gin and tonic or yeah. something like that uh, quite the uh, same buzz but you know. i'll report back on that <laughs> another thing is nice is chuck in just a, a little pinch of salt just a hint of salt i haven't tried that one right. uh, add that yeah. to the repertoire tonight yep All right, guys, well, we're going to take another quick break and we're going to come back after this message. Are you concerned about your finances? Maybe you're not sure if you'll have enough money to retire on. Or maybe you've received a redundancy, inheritance, or even a significant promotion or perhaps a life-changing medical diagnosis. Regardless of your concern or financial position, United Global Capital's advisors are experts in the areas of strategic financial planning, taxation, superannuation and self-managed superannuation funds, risk management, estate planning and investments. Don't let fate dictate your financial future. Take control today and contact United Global Capital for a no-cost, no-obligation financial strategy consultation. Simply call 03-8657-7640 or email info at ugc.net.au and book your appointment today. Right, and welcome back. Now, Brett, you're going to have a chat to us today about how residential property performed in 2020. Yep, sure, Steph. Uh, I I regularly review um, the CoreLogic uh, charts that they release on a monthly basis. Uh, Their most recent one they've released in January, they've also titled the 2020 in review. So it gives us some insights about what actually happened over the whole year of 2020, which for the bulk of it was was throughout COVID and, and a number of restrictions and lockdowns. Uh, and I thought it'd be interesting to see, well, what, what actually did transpire over the whole course of the year and, and what are the trends or outliers that uh, could be giving us some insight as to what the future may hold. Uh, so what, what are the key stats they always have at the, the front of their chart pack monthly is how much of Australia's household wealth is actually in residential housing. Uh, and it's always been around the 50% mark. It's currently sitting at 52.6% uh, of household wealth. Now, they define that by having three other asset classes um, that they compare it to. One of them is superannuation. Uh, another one is the, the stocks listed on the ASX. And, and the final one being commercial real estate. 
So the part of the or the piece of the puzzle that's missing in my eyes is there's nothing about cash or any fixed interest or, or money held in in bank accounts there. So they're really only saying that based on those four asset classes, residential property makes up 52.5% of all that. So a big asset. And typically with Australia, we know that most people hold the majority of their wealth in their family home. Mm -hmm. uh, and now that an extension of that can be investment properties as well. Uh, the, the good news from December, uh, so we've, we've got a, a couple of uh, measurements to look at. So the, the chart pack talks about December uh, in terms of what happened. It talks about the, the quarter leading to the end of December, but also the whole uh, year 2020 from January to December. Uh, at, and December itself was uh, a unique month because it had positive territory in basically every market across the country in dwelling values increasing. Right. Uh, with the total average across the country rising 2.3% for the quarter up to December. So if we're looking for a trend, it's, it's definitely positive, and it's been trending positive since about October uh, across the board. There's some subtle differences state to state and city to city, but overall the national dwelling values have been rising since October uh, on the whole. And interestingly, the only uh, only city that actually has a negative value for the whole year of 2020 is actually Melbourne. Mm. Oh, right. Which is down on uh, over the whole year is down 1.3%. Even though it's got positive territory over the last few months, uh, it's it's down over the whole year. And I, I would have to say that's got to be linked to Melbourne having the most severe restrictions and lockdowns yeah. that, that led to a whole lot of transactions not happening. Yeah, is that Melbourne um, like set, like sort of the city areas or is it count, does it account for sort of regional? No, no, purely the capital city, so the metropolitan yeah. area of Melbourne. Okay. Uh, the interesting thing though is is Melbourne holds a, a couple of outlier positions in in all of this data. That's one where it's the only capital city to be negative for the year, mm -hmm. uh, but it's also the only capital city to have more property listings in December than it did in December two thousand and nineteen. Really? Yep. So the rest of the capital cities uh, have got lower new listings in December than they had in 2019, whereas Melbourne's got a significantly higher amount in 2020 than it did in 2019. But again, do you think that comes back to COVID and, and you know, being locked down for so long and everyone's listing new properties or putting things on the market? I certainly know um, Joel's mum was quite keen to sell her place. And as soon as the restrictions started to lift, that's when she was sort of ready for, for the market and ready to take action. Look, I think it has to be because, it, I mean, if you reflect on, on what we went through, it was really probably around mid-November we started to feel like we were opening up again. Mm. Uh, and if you were sort of eyeing the market off but not really willing to commit until you felt confident that we weren't going to have any new restrictions or have our potential auction interfered with, with, with other um, potential lockdowns again, you probably didn't feel that confidence until the start of December, really. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So, right. it, you know, when we look at the whole story, the data makes sense. Mm. What, what's your prediction for, for this year, Brett? Will, you, will it continue? Will Melbourne keep listing new properties? Um, you know, do you, do you think the strength will stay in the property market? What's your, what's your prediction on the whole thing? Well, look, the, the outlier or, or the unknown here is, is if we get additional waves of COVID in any way that forces back into any lockdowns and restrictions and also the, the flow on effect of, of any economical things that happen in terms of, you know, when the, 
the uh, JobKeeper subsides, when small businesses is, is, is fending for itself, when we start to see the flow-on effect of where they're really at, uh, it, that's a bit of an unknown. But if I look at purely, you know, the, the trends that are happening across Australian property, and in particular Melbourne, as we've discussed, and especially with, uh, with uh, interest rates still at an all-time low, the demand for people to buy property is, is really high. Uh, so I can see property, especially dwelling prices, being positive throughout the rest of this year, unless we get another severe lockdown or a major economic impact such as unemployment uh, or you know people's incomes being taken away in some capacity. Mm. Barring that, I, I can't see any reason the property market wouldn't grow in value over the next year. Yeah. yeah. Uh, another trend I thought was interesting, uh, and this is a trend that's been happening for a long time, but it's one we haven't touched on for a while, is the volume of uh, of owner occupiers versus investors in the market. Okay. So a, a couple of things have happened that I think led to this. I think the biggest one was. Um, basically the overseas investor market virtually disappearing uh, around 2017-18 and mostly due to the Chinese government putting restrictions on the amount of money flowing out uh, of China, uh, which really put a handbrake on a lot of the new developments in, and in particular apartments that were being sold to the, the Chinese and Asian market. I think another one that happened at the same time that that's probably had an impact to the same degree was the disappearing of, uh, of SMSF lenders. Yeah, uh, there mm -hmm. was typically a you know a, a, an appetite for people to buy investment property within their SMSF, but with from what I'm aware that I'm only aware of I think three lenders that will lend to an SMSF for residential property, uh, and with the rates being you know virtually double what uh, an, an uh, a normal purchase would be, it's not really attractive to buy property within super. So therefore, you've got overseas investment virtually gone superannuation investment of residential property virtually gone. Mm. It really only leaves uh, the people willing to buy it in their own personal names or, or through, you know, their family trusts or alike. Uh, and that's seen it decline to probably the lowest it's been in, in 20 years. Right. So I think as a whole, investors as a portion of, of total lending uh, is down at around 20%. Right. If we go back to, I guess, when we had some peaks in the in the last cycle was around 2012-13, it was getting up as high as 55%. Is that right? Wow. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So a, a big part of the market gone missing. Uh, but having said that, the volumes we are seeing and the prices we're seeing, it's all people buying their own places uh, to live in. Uh, and, a, and a big portion of that, again, is, uh, is first-home buyers. Mm-hmm. And you think uh, that debt's going to also stay low? I mean, the interest rates, you know, that's going to continue for a long period of time? Or Look, I, I can't see any reason why it, it would increase. And if it does increase any time in the next year to two years, I can't see it being any more than, you know, maybe half a percent. If yeah. it increases, it's only going to be really incrementally. Uh, mm -hmm. We're not going to see it suddenly skyrocket over a year to, you know, the, with the RBA rate at 0.1%, I can't see it getting to 2% in the next two years. Yeah. I, I think... Well, does start to grow it's it's only going to be you know in slow increments yeah certainly a, a good time to invest if you've um if you've got a sort of stable job and in a position to do it i mean it's a, it sounds like a pretty good opportunity yeah i think so you know if if you're able to get your affairs in order you should be able to get a mortgage for for around two percent 
you know, somewhere between two and three seems to be the average at the moment. If over the next couple of years it does go up, you know, you still should be under 5% with your, your cost of borrowings, which yeah. typically if we look at what residential property is grown by, that's that's a great rate. Yeah, it is. All right. Well, certainly keep a look out on the market and um, look forward to hearing it as, it as it goes along for this year and, and see what happens. Um, now, before we close out today, your favourite topic of the day, which is you can't be serious. Mm. I'm sure uh, there's a couple of smiles on screen there. Louie, I'm going to pick on you because you're smiling too sweetly. What have you got for us? <laughs> <laughs> That's just my handsome face. <laughs> uh, I am actually offended today oh. uh, about something. Um, there is uh, something which sounds like a nice story, but I think is actually a terrible story. So... In New York City, during lockdown, uh, someone in an apartment block put up a, a note to their fellow apartment dwellers saying, uh, I'm really sorry, but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to be learning, uh, learning an instrument. I'm going to be learning the trumpet, so there's going to be a bit of noise. Uh, but hey, we're in lockdown and, uh, and we've got to just do what we've got to do, right? And the neighbours uh, responded really nicely. They left notes back for him saying, uh, oh, I've been listening to you for a month, uh, love listening to you playing, you're getting so much better. Um, but where I get offended is where the notes back are saying, um, I just love listening to your saxophone playing. And as a saxophone player myself, I'm offended that people can't tell the difference between a trumpet and a saxophone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a very personal one, Louis. <laughs> they look the same too. More of a musical ear than most, so that's why. <laughs> they sound completely different. Come they do on, sound people. completely different, but uh, you know, you know, maybe, maybe when it's it's coming through the walls, you, you can't really tell. So. <laughs> ah, it's not true. That's a bad excuse. What about you, Brett? What have you got for us today? Ah, uh, look, I I take my hat off to to the ingenuity of of some kids. Uh, obviously, through lockdown, there was a lot of homeschooling going on and, and kids were, were logging in via remote uh, <laughs> software such as Teams and, and Zoom. Uh, and something that we better be careful, we don't let spread within our office because you know, we tend to have a lot of meetings where, where we're all online together. But one kid managed to fool his teacher for, for the best part of a month uh, so that he was never asked questions by changing his name in the online meeting to reconnecting. <laughs> I love it. And I have heard of this going on, and um, a few of a few people that I know, certainly my my, my sister's friends, were um, using that at uni as well. So it's, it has been doing the rounds. Yeah, yeah. and I've seen there was a, a couple of others that kids tried. So they would they would hijack the names of of some of their friends in class and and. Yeah, put bad messages in the chat. Uh, another person used a similar uh, name called buffering. So, <laughs> they're clever. They'll find a way. I've got to actually mention this too, and, and it might be Ali, Ali and Brianna, my sisters, that, that listen to this podcast. Uh, but they used to tell me when they were on the internet chat rooms, um, they would write um, POS. And I said, what, what is that? And she said, um, parent over shoulder. And I thought, oh, my God. I had no idea. So I've, I've lost the lingo. I'm not that cool anymore. So. <laughs> oh, we're too far removed. Oh. That's it. Uh, now, jo Joel, I think you're uh, letting us down this morning. I'm, I'm letting us down this morning. I'm sorry. I, 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 I'm, I'm, yeah, 
I'm struggling. <laughs> you can't be serious. That's funny enough. That's, he, he, he can't, can't be, be serious. serious. He hasn't had a drink. <laughs> it's problem. Well, it's just ticked over nine o'clock in the morning, Joel. It's time for a drink now. Oh, there we go. Beautiful. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll make him a sparkling water with a pinch of salt. There you go. <laughs> well, look, guys, have a fabulous weekend. And um, thanks to our listeners for tuning in. And we'll uh, do it again next Friday. Take care.